This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome aboard the starship literary tracks we're a podcast aren't we we're not a starship what am i talking about this is the official podcast of trek fm about the star trek books and comics and i'm just one of your hosts my name is bruce gibson and our other co-host here on literary tracks that is a star trek trivia genius is dan gunther dan you got some trivia for us? Uh, I, I, Star Trek trivia genius. That's a lot to live up to. I, I don't think I don't think I'm that. I was actually just thinking if we are a starship, I kind of want to, you know, do the background noise of the ship but through the whole episode. Yeah, that's probably not good for the sound, though. I don't know. But, no, it's uh, not. But my stomach can make that sound when I'm hungry. <laughs> Speaking of Star Trek trivia, did you know that that sound was made by I have no idea. I'm just kidding. I've got I was like, there. "Oh my gosh, you're going to impress <laughs> us with your knowledge." I have to do say, so we went to uh the when we were at Star Trek Las Vegas, we went to a party that was thrown by Fansets and the Trek Geeks from the Trek Geeks podcast, Bill and Dan. Another day in there, see, you know, but they had all this trivia and you were like answering the questions, but not everyone. You were like giving me answers because you can't like win every prize, but you knew like 85% of the questions you knew the answers to. I was actually really surprised on some of them that, you know, they, they'd yell out a question and, you know, you're supposed to stick up your hand and they're supposed to see you do that. And I'd look around and I'd already answered one and won something. And I looked around and nobody's sticking up their hand. I'm going, come on, guys. You know, the 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 name of the ship that Captain Maxwell commanded in the Cardassian War was the Rutledge. How do you people not know this? Like, <laughs> Well, that was the same couple nights before at the Tricorder Transmissions party, their podcast network party we went to. And they were doing trivia and you were the same, like, they're like, okay, people have already won something. Don't answer the next, give other people a chance. And you're just like, oh, I know the answer to this. Oh, I know the answer to that too. So yeah, yeah I was very what's impressed. What's Quark's father's name? Everyone knows that, right? It's Keldar. It's Quark, son of Keldar when he's 
do it when he oh it's it's one of my favorite things in the episode the house of quark he's like i am quark son of keldar here to answer the challenge of Dagore, son of whatever i love that line <laughs> <laughs> yep see you got it all that's why you're on the show you know all the star trek stuff so we, we will do a trivia contest between you and larry nemechek and see how that goes with mr or i shouldn't say mr if dr trek as i like call I s- him doctor like i say he's the only guy that scares me when it comes to trek trivia i oof, i don't know but you know <laughs> you could beat him at trivia on novels because he doesn't read the novels and there's a reason larry does not read the novels it's because dr trek does not want to get confused by things that are non-canon because he wants to remember the things that are canon if he gets non-canon things in his head he'll get all messed up so that's why he doesn't know the novels that well to be fair, there are a lot of people out there that could probably beat me on the novels because I've not read all of them. I've not read even close to all of them. I think Justin Ozer could, you know, beat the pants off me in Trek trivia with novels. So. Oh, yeah, he's gaining on us with all his uh, <laughs> Trek novel reading. And I know one novel you've read, and that's our feature today. It's Star Trek Voyager Homecoming. And this is the book that takes place immediately after the last episode of Voyager. So it's where we find our Voyager crew after they return to Earth. So we'll get into that. And we have Brandy Jacola on to talk about it with us. And she's from Warp 5 here on the network. So tune in for that. But before we get to it, let's get to the news. And I think this is a very important subject that we needed to discuss. STLV, they announced, I should say, that Sir Patrick Stewart announced that he is returning to the role of Jean-Luc Picard in a new TV series that will be coming up sometime on CBS All Access, probably not any time in the next year or so. It could be a couple years. But... Um, it's not a literary Trek's topic that there's a new TV series necessarily that's coming. It's that how would that impact the novel continuity in the universe? Because this series is supposed to take place 20 years after Star Trek Nemesis. And as we know from the Trek lit continuity, we're almost a decade after Nemesis. So we already have a consistent continuity after Nemesis that's almost a decade. This series will be two decades out. So will this series contradict things, maybe part of it, maybe all of it that has happened in that continuity? How is that going to affect the novels? And so we recorded an episode of Earl Grey about this announcement when we were at STLV. And a question was asked to me, Dan had to leave the show early. Zach Moore, who was on the show with us, asked the question of me, would you be upset if the current continuity became like, quote, legends, like what happened with Star Wars? They had to start reboot basically the continuity in the novels and the old novels became legends. Would that bother you? Dan. Well, Star Trek's kind of in a unique position because Star Trek novels kind of already have that aspect to them already. You know, there was never there was never a point ever in the history of Star Trek where the powers that be said, "Oh, the novels are canon." You know, the novels you can have them in your continuity or whatever, but at any time any TV show or movie can totally wipe them out. And the reason Star Wars in my humble opinion, was able to have the novels in continuity was for such a long time. The, the canon was three films, but Star Trek has always been, you know, 79 episodes, then 
six movies, then, you know, seven seasons of the next generation and seven seasons of like, they just kept adding more and more to the quote unquote canon of Star Trek. So it was never really tenable to ever have the novels be declared canon. So, you know, this is kind of just the reality that lovers of Star Trek novels have had to live with. And there's many novels in the past, in the eighties and the nineties that, you know, no longer fit into continuity because of something that's come along on the TV show. The Final Reflection, for example, one of my all-time favorite novels, is still one of my all-time favorite novels, even though it doesn't really fit into canon. I would be disappointed, of course, because if something came and, you know, made those, uh, the post-nemesis novels not in continuity, I, I think Pocket Books would stop making them. That's what I would be. I would be sad about that for sure. But I would also not want the show to be beholden to one line in a novel somewhere. Yeah, I'm the same way. I I went into the into all the novels as knowing that they could always be contradicted later. Or it could be, I guess, wiped out in a sense or whatever. But as I mentioned on that episode of Earl Grey, you know, unlike Star Wars, we're fortunate in the Star Trek universe that you could kind of tie things in and just somehow that the timeline got changed or this is a parallel universe or something and you could tie the new continuity with this other lit uh, verse continuity in, in some capacity. But then again, I mean, there's still a decade gap between where we are with the current Trek lit continuity and where this TV series is going to be that the writers could make it all somehow fit. I mean, we could get in the series and maybe Picard says he was never married to Beverly Crusher. Well, he's married to Beverly Crusher in the books, but they could write a story where he divorced Beverly Crusher and doesn't want to admit or doesn't want to tell people that he was ever married or something, you know, and then that, kind of, yeah, they, they can do that certain things. Sounds like threads. it'd be a sad story. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm just saying there's always different creative ways. But even regardless, mm -hmm. if they stopped the current continuity and had to start over or whatever, I'd be fine with it. I mean, I, I yeah. I, and Brandon Shea Matala was on, too, and he said the same thing about, you know, we've always had contradictions. There's The novels don't all fit. Uh, you know, we're used to that. So it, this wouldn't mm -hmm. be anything unique. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. And I understand that some people would be very upset if it doesn't. But Kirsten Beyer, who writes the Voyager novels, She's worked on Discovery. She is a very prominent member of this new series. This is her brainchild, as Ted Sullivan yeah. had mentioned. He's a writer for Discovery. And so she may say, hey, look, guys, let's do it this way. But still, it will fit with what has been happening in the novels. So we could get that. Absolutely. That's, the, that's one thing that just really fills me with a lot of hope uh is kirsten byer's involvement and the fact that apparently like you said this whole series was her idea she had an idea and put it forward and now they're going for it that just blows my mind and makes me really happy and like you said there's over a decade in between where the novels currently are and where this series is supposedly going to be set so that could give them ample opportunity to build a bridge there or not or whatever. There was also Dayton Ward, of course, we know is currently working on a novel set in that continuity. And he had actually asked uh, the powers that be about this very issue because, you know, obviously, you know, something with Picard is coming. You're writing a novel having to do with Picard that's set in that era. You're going to be curious about it. 
So he did say that, you know, he's not worried because he's working on a novel set during that time period. And of course, people asked him more about it. And he actually did kind of expand on his thoughts on Facebook that I found. And I, I thought this was really good. So this is what he said on Facebook. What I can honestly say is that I was aware this was in the works even before I began developing my outline for the TNG book I'm currently writing, and that carrying on the TNG story as we've been laying it out all this time was my specific mandate, both from my editor and CBS licensing. I point-blank asked about any particular concerns or issues which might impact what I was planning should this come to pass, and was told to carry on with what I was doing." Personally, I'm not too worried about the Treklet status quo as things, at least as things currently stand, but that's me speaking only for myself, but based on the conversations I've had about this. So, I mean, things could change, obviously. Like Patrick Stewart said at the convention, there are no scripts yet. There's just kind of rough ideas. So, you know, something could come along that totally blows the lit verse out of the water. But as it stands right now, they're still commissioning new novels set in that continuity. Yeah, I see no reason to stop it. Even if the new series came on, I mean, you could still keep with this continuity maybe for a little while, but I know they're not wanting to confuse people. So more than likely they would stop it if, if the new series really contradicts it. But again, we're used to it. I mean, in the IDW comics, the ones that came out for the Countdown series that uh, were part of Star Trek 09 and they did some stuff with In the Darkness. I mean, the countdown to Star Trek 09 with Nero and, and that whole setup in the 24th century already contradicts somewhat, doesn't fit entirely with the novel universe. And then there's Star Trek Online that has its own continuity. It has borrowed some things from the novels, but, you know, for example, Deep Space Nine is still there not the new deep space nine studio so we already have different universes in a sense going on right now in the 24th century with star trek online the countdown comics and the novel universe and i mean just to pull an example from the past star trek federation one of my favorite novels uh, that i don't think has been covered on literary treks actually by judith and garfield reeve stevens i think it meshed with continuity for all of a year because it came out about a year before uh, Star Trek Generations came out or First Contact, one of the two. I think but it was before it, Generations, yeah. Before Generations, yeah, and and it was immediately <laughs> no longer compatible with canon. So, and it's still to this day one of my favorite Star Trek novels. So you know this happens, as they say in Battlestar Galactica. All of this has happened before, and all of it will happen again. <laughs> Well, and speaking of new stories, so we did get notice that Star Trek Waypoint is returning uh, to our favorite comic book lines here. Instead, where before we had all these, uh, what was it, eight issues, six issues, something like that of Waypoint. Mm -hmm. So we're going back to Waypoint, but this will be a extra length one shot coming in November. So there'll be three stories set in the Prime Universe. Uh, we don't know all the details yet, but one of them is going to be a Deep Space Nine tale. And if you look at the cover, you see Esri Dax. So obviously she's involved in that uh, ch in that chapter. Then we have another chapter from The Next Generation. And this one's fairly interesting because it's from the point of view of Spot, which is Data's cat. So that should be a fun one. And then there's another story. The third story is to cover the entire length of Trek history. So those three stories will come out in one issue of Waypoint. And uh, 
We have those written by Brandon Easton, Jackson Lanzig, and Colin Kelly. That's one of them. Then the others by Dave Baker and Nicole Goex. And then, and Matt Dow Smith writes the third one. And so um, we do have artwork provided by Goex Smith, Sony Liu, and Josh Hood. So this is pretty exciting, Dan. What do you think about the return of Waypoint, at least in one issue? I think that's pretty cool. I enjoyed Waypoint. I thought it was kind of fun to have a fresh take on the Star Trek universe and stories from corners that we wouldn't necessarily get. I know, you know, some of them were a little off-putting. We had a story from the written by uh, Naomi Wildman, for example, and a story featuring a time-traveling Porthos from Enterprise. So there's definitely some odd stuff out there, but... I like it. You know, uh, if you want a normal everyday Star Trek story, there's lots of those. So I'm excited to see these kind of strange takes, you know, including a story from the, sp- the perspective of Spot. Why not? That sounds cool. Yeah. And we're also getting, I guess, in the next generation story, one of them, a younger Picard with hair. Yeah, this was at STLV as well. They didn't reveal a lot about it, but they showed a teaser picture, which is from the the episode Violations with Picard with hair. So uh, they made reference to the past of the future. So it sounds like a younger Picard story, maybe set on the stargazer or something like that. Well, I just double checked and yeah. So the previous line was six issues. So this would basically be the seventh, but this isn't, you know, issue number seven. This is just a one shot standalone of three stories. So it's extra long. So we'll be checking that out in November. And of course we'll be talking about that here on literary tracks but you know what we do like to talk about comics so let's talk about one now it's the last issue of discovery succession now issue number four and we've been covering these as they have come out in the last few months and we're going into the mirror universe that's when these comics take place in this run of four issues and we have starting off on earth in the Terran Empire, there is the new emperor, which is a cousin of Giorgio's. He has taken over the empire, and he also has our favorite characters of Cornwell and Laurel and Cole and Burnham captured at Phaser Point. And he's basically telling them, if you think you can come in here and take over and get me out of the way, you are sorry. You are so mistaken. Pride goeth before a fall, as they say, because, yeah, we get these Klingons in a surprise, you know, uh, human shackles are no match for Klingon strength. And Laurel and Cole bust out of them and get the drop on the guards and the emperor and the tables definitely turn. Okay, first of all, I have to say, I have loved this series. This miniseries has been incredible. And this final issue is no different. It is so good. And my favorite moment in the entire comic comes very early in this issue. Can you guess what my favorite moment is? Is it something with Burnham and Cornwell? It is totally something with Burnham and Cornwell. I love the way this is written. So Burnham has gotten Cornwell on her side by uh, assuring her that she has no designs for the emperor's throne. You know, there'll be a council of, of, such and such to to rule the empire no more emperor and i i have no ambitions to do that cornwell's like 
that was that was how she got me on her side. She promised all this. And Burnham's standing behind her and says, yeah, about that. And then plunges a dagger into Cornwell's back. Like, this is the mirror universe, guys. These are not nice people. And that was so well done. That was. I was not expecting that because the two of them at this point were working together with the same common goal. And then once that was done, all of a sudden she stabs uh, Cornwell in the back. It was like, whoa, where was that coming? (laughs) And then she kills Alexander. It's like, whoa. I mean, she's vicious. And now she's the new emperor. And I thought, wow, this is really cool because if you think back to watching to Discovery and you see Giorgio as emperor and she goes back to the prime universe with Burnham. Who would have thought that what takes place after that in the mirror universe, Burnham is alive and then becomes emperor. And that's an interesting story in itself. Not just this story, but the thought of, ooh, wouldn't it be great to see some episodes or some stories about Burnham being emperor? And I was like, I love that idea. But I don't think that would work because of what happens later in this story (laughs) (laughs) it's the mirror universe this is not the emperor's throne is not a safe place to be the one aspect of of burnham i liked was even though she does this and claims the throne she still acts and i believe her that she does not really want to be emperor and she kind of sees it as her duty she says you know i know where my place is you know, Giorgio was the previous emperor and I'm her successor. I have to do this kind of thing. But she still kind of doesn't like she's ambitious and she seizes the emperorship, but uh, doesn't seem like that's what she really, really wants to do. So that was kind of an interesting aspect to her character that I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. And if you haven't read this and you don't want to hear more, just maybe skip ahead now to the feature. But yeah, I mean, we're already starting to give some things away, but I think the next thing that I really like is when we get to the Shenzhou, because on the Shenzhou, we have Arium as captain. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you one thing. She's a background character. If anybody's wondering, wait, who are you talking about? She's on the bridge of Discovery, and she's the officer that looks almost like robotic. She has like, you know, stuff on her head or whatever. Uh, We met the actress, actually, when we were at Star Trek Mm -hmm. Las Vegas. She was very nice. And this character, we just don't know that much about her. But in these comics, she's becoming like one of my favorite, at least in the mirror universe. Oh, yeah, totally. And and like you said, we met her at STLV. And I actually asked her if she had read these comics. And she said that she hadn't, but she heard that Arium plays a really cool role in the in the story. And she's really looking forward to reading them. And apparently... Uh, after I'd spoken to her, somebody had gifted her the three issues that had been out at the time. Uh, she didn't have the fourth one yet, but was going to get her hands on it. And I think she's going to be pretty pleased when she comes to the end of this, because my second favorite moment comes very quickly here. And it's the art and the writing of this is just so subtle and so great. So Burnham's coronation on earth basically and they're chanting long live the emperor long live the empire and all that stuff and all of a sudden there's some sort of phenomenon happening in the sky and you know burnham's like oh that's impressive and the guy's like oh it's not my doing i don't know what this is and we see arium and just like in a previous issue where she 
killed everybody on the bridge except herself. This little helmet just goes over her face and a Klingon next to her just kind of glances over like, huh? <laughs> and you know what's coming at that point. And it's just so beautifully, brilliantly done. And again, I mean, we're really nearing the end of this. And when she takes off her helmet, we see basically mm-hmm. the face under this. And it almost looks like she's like somewhat of a zombie or a Borg type look, you know, very gray and no eyeballs, just dark eye. I mean, just like, I'm so fascinated by this character now. <laughs> I just want to know more about, and I will say I was at a panel where uh, this actress, um, her name is Sarah Midditch. Uh, she was on a panel with some of the other actors that have bit parts on the bridge and they did say that we will learn more about their characters on the series in season two. So I'm very interested to see even how that ties into this. So by the end, she's, you know, killed everyone and is now the emperor herself. And yeah, she kind of got this almost Supreme leader Snoke look going on or something. It's, it's, it's kind of disturbing, but right after that, we get this epilogue and I'm curious your thoughts on it. We see a nebula and it says captain's log supplemental. I swear that sometimes news travels faster than light. To which I say, yes, it's Star Trek. News does travel faster than light. It's called subspace, but whatever. (laughs) And the news from the Imperial capital is certainly unexpected. And we see a Constitution-class ship flying by. What ship do you suppose this is, Bruce? I have no idea. There's just so many that it could be Mm -hmm. anything. It could just be anything. Now, whenever this... Yeah, of course, obviously, they're hinting that's probably the Enterprise. Uh (laughs) But when I read this at first, I was like, okay, I don't get it. And then I was like, oh, wait, oh, wait, 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 it's the Enterprise. <laughs> like, at first I was just like, wait, it's over? What just happened? Nothing, like, I was expecting more. And then I realized, oh, I see what's going on here. Yeah, like, I, you see the, the preview or the, the advertisement for Terra Incognita is the next page. And I was like, wait, what? What? Come on. What is, what, what? Like, it totally seems like there's more to it than that. But that is what we end on. So... Man, you know, with season two coming and we see the Enterprise, season two of Discovery coming and we see the Enterprise and we see Captain Pike, I wonder if there's some thought to continuing this story with the Mirror Pike and the Enterprise or something like that. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I think it would be cool. It's interesting how this series ends with a tease of the Enterprise, just like season one of Discovery ended with a tease of the Enterprise. We'll just have to wait and see if they uh, bring another series of stories that continue this continuity of the Mere Universe. And uh, more than likely, yes, we will see the Enterprise because that kind of tease leads into that. So, But yeah, very good series. Check it out if you haven't. And uh, I say we go right into the feature because it seems like Brandy's kind of getting anxious. She's ready to talk. I agree completely. I'll meet you there. Okay, now we're into our feature, and we're going to talk about the novel Voyager Homecoming by Christy Golden. And this little nugget came out, well, after Voyager, (laughs) because it picks up after the last episode of Voyager. I can't remember exactly what year. Dan, do you remember what year this came out? I absolutely do remember what year, and in fact, it was the year 2003. Well, joining us here on the feature is Brandy... Depending what mood you're in, it can be Jacola, Jackala, however you want to pronounce it at the time. It's Brandy. 
Yeah. Hi, guys. I'm so happy to be back. So happy to have you on. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, because we have Homecoming, the Voyager novel Homecoming, and then the second part of that book is The Farther Shore, which we'll talk about on the next episode with you, Brandy. Yes. Right? Good. You're coming back, right? Of sure. course. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm Good. ready. Good. So ready. Okay, so let me start off by asking you, Brandy, first, have you ever read this book before? I have not. Okay, so first time Brandy, but Dan, I think you've read this before, right? I have. It's kind of weird. I, I read this years ago, and then for some reason wasn't able to uh, move on to the farther shore right away. So it went a few years, and I, I came back to it uh, another couple years ago to um, review it for my website, which I did. And then started to get too busy with books for the Literary Treks podcast. So once again, did not get a chance to read The Farther Shore. So this is my third time reading Homecoming. And next week will be my first time reading The Farther Shore. So it, wow. it's ridiculous. I've been left with this cliffhanger three times and not had it resolved. Well, except for this <laughs> third time, I guess. <laughs> wow. Uh, so this is my second time reading this. I read it when it first came out, and I did read The Farther Shore when it came out, but that was back in 2003, so I haven't read this since. It's been 15 years, and I'm surprised how much I do remember of it, so that's always good, because sometimes I read a book and I go back to read it, I'm like, I barely remembered any of that, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but this one, it stuck with me. But the one thing that didn't stick with me is how this book starts off. I don't remember this part. I find yeah. this a little odd. I didn't remember this at all either. So there's this whole like story about a child that's being abused by the hand. Like it's being physically abused. I'm assuming it was its father. I think they identified that too. I don't think it was the father. I think it was the stepfather. Oh, uh, oh, okay. I, I didn't right. pick up on that. Interesting. Yeah, because she right. was yes. in that first thing. She's talking about how the time before the hand came. So, yes. oh, right. That's right. Yeah. So it starts off with that. And then later on in the book, we come back to that of the child that's a little older and the hand. And there's maybe three times I think that comes up in the book. And then it just, we never revisit it. So I don't really know how it ties into the overall story at this point, which I think we have to go to the next book to find that out. But I don't remember that from the first time I read it. So what, what do you guys think of that? Do you have any idea how this connects to the story that we get in Homecoming? I had an idea that, okay, this is about a character that's in this book. And I knew that it wasn't about any of our main Voyager people. So... I had to wait and see what woman popped up in the storyline that seemed like they were going to be some kind of player. And the minute Brenna Covington is introduced, I'm like, there she is. Interesting. I didn't pick up on it at all as far as who it could be uh, reading this. But uh, what, what also struck me was the fact that, you know, we're told anyway that things like this are basically unheard of in human society in the 24th century. So 
you know, my brain started making all these connections and going to all these weird places. Like what sort of safety net is in place for, for someone going through this? Who would she tell yeah. if, if this is just something that never happens? Like that would magnify the, the crisis that she's going through so much more. And I just found myself like shuddering thinking of that society where there's just nobody for her to relate to or tell, or, you know, like, it's just so unheard of that, Oh, it, it started to really freak me out. So, yeah, you know, they'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the next book. Yep. So anyway, let's talk about uh, this actual story that takes place after Endgame, the final episode of Voyager. So we go into this finding out what is the aftermath of the return of Voyager to Earth. How are the Maquis crew members going to be accepted into the Federation? Are they or aren't they accepted? What happens to Janeway? What happens to Seven and Chakotay's relationship? All those questions that you had at the end of Endgame are answered here. And yes, I know it's not canon, but (laughs) it's the closest thing we've got right now. So, okay, the Maquis crew, they come back to Earth and what happens to them? They're, They're okay. fine. They're fine. <laughs> <laughs> nothing happens to them. <laughs> the funny thing is, we have all of these questions, and and my biggest problem with the Voyager finale was that like we get to Earth, that's it, credits roll. I'm like, I want like another half season at least to find out all this stuff, and this book kind of attempts to rectify that by showing what happens. But the other the thing is, all of these questions are answered in like the first 20 or 30 pages. I'm like, OK, so uh, the Maki crew members are fine. Janeway gets a promotion to Admiral. Everyone gets a promotion one step up. Tuvok's cured. All this like is just bang, 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 bang. <laughs> OK, cool. That was quick. I, I agree. This is probably the biggest problem I had with the novel was the first few chapters, because all these things do seem to get resolved quickly. And if no one has read this novel and doesn't want to know much about what happened after Endgame, uh, then you probably want to stop listening at this point because we're going to tell you about everything that's happened to these characters. We've already given you a clue. Of course, we've all known that Janeway got promoted to Admiral at some point because we saw that in Star Trek Nemesis. But um, yeah, but the Maquis, the war's over and... uh, Basically, they're pardoned. They just, hey, you can be in Starfleet. You're you're accepted. You're go off and have a good life. You know, thank you for your your accomplishments out there in the Delta Quadrant. One thing with uh, regards to the Maquis, and I, I really, it feels like Christy Golden is setting stuff up for future novels because she keeps mentioning this incident on this moon where all the Maquis were wiped out, and I didn't recognize the name, so I looked it up. Because I was like, was that the base that Eddington was on in, in that episode of Deep Space Nine where the remnants of the Maquis were or something like that? And that doesn't seem to be the case. And then I saw references to uh, the, the two-part novels that take place after these two novels. So I was like, oh, okay. So I think a lot of what's happening here is Christy Golden is setting stuff up for her future books as well, which I thought was interesting. I am so glad you said that because the next two books after these are the what the Spirit Walk books right they call spirit walks those after i've read all the post voyager novels except for those two Mm -hmm. yeah and i haven't read them either myself so oh i thought maybe you read the first one three times (laughs) i haven't read them either (laughs) let's do another episode about those 
I think that might be happening. (laughs) (laughs) But not anytime soon, because we've got a whole calendar planned out for quite a while. But yes, we will definitely get to those. Those are definitely on the list. But now, you know, with Janeway rising to Admiral, Brandy, what do you think, not just that she got promoted, but every crew member got promoted at a party? They basically walked in and said, okay, everybody moves up a rank. Congratulations. Clap, 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 clap. Big box op hips. Yeah, it was um, disappointing in my view. And I kind of felt the same way that Janeway did about it. It's like, oh, you're making an effort to make a big show because we have to make some kind of show. But frankly, it seems like they don't really care about the crew so much they've been fighting the dominion war and all of that other stuff and they're just like glad you're home okay thanks bye that's pretty much the feeling that you get from most people in command on in starfleet on on earth and (laughs) it's like when janeway goes in to be debriefed and she expects it to take a long time and it takes like 45 minutes. And she's just like, there, there's, we were there for seven years. I have tons of stuff I can tell you and you're not asking me about any of it. And so it's all just very suspicious how much they don't really care about the people that came home and they seem to care more about the ship. That aspect of it, I thought was kind of an interesting take on it. Just like, uh, and I mean, it's taken to the nth degree here, and it's very much like very brusque and that sort of thing. But I kind of almost liked that perspective from Starfleet. Like we've had this ship that's been missing for seven years, but in those seven years, we fought we fought a war that you know battles took place all the way to Earth. I mean, you know, San Francisco was bombed. You know, all of this stuff happened in these seven years. And, oh, Voyager's back. That's great. We're rebuilding the fleet and we've got another ship back. That's cool. But we've got a lot of stuff that we're dealing with here. And I kind of almost liked that from the perspective of Voyager because we've had seven years focusing on this ship and crew. And what would it be like to come home and just be another ship in the fleet? And just, you know, you kind of, I almost likened it to when you live abroad for a few years and you're having all these wild experiences and Uh, encountering new cultures and that sort of thing. And then you come home and you just go to work in a cubicle and you're just another one of the drones, you know, it just like, Hmm, I, you know, not to sound, you know, too high on oneself, but I was special when we were the only ship in the Delta quadrant. And now we're just back and it's not as great as you think. It almost feeds into that Voyager theme of it's not the destination that matters. It's the journey because, you know, once you get there, it's not as amazing as you think it was going to be. Having a thing is not so pleasing as wanting it, as Spock would say. It's not logical, but it's often true. You know, this this reminds me so much of the rescue of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I love it. I love you so much, Bruce. I love you I'm so much, man. I'm so serious about it because that's pretty much what that movie was uh they got rescued but there was a big celebration you know i think they were had a bigger celebration even the president president carter called them and (laughs) this is how long ago that was oh yeah i was alive yeah and then they they weren't like fitting in as well and really they found out that they were a family 
And that's where they belonged, was back together themselves. And they actually end up back on the island by accident. (laughs) (laughs) But it was like going back home. I mean, it's kind of like that same theme here, that they become so much of a family on Voyager, but to split them up is not the correct way to go, because they have formed their own family. They're different now. And I mean, I guess that's Mm -hmm. kind of fast-forwarding a little further into the book, but that reception that they're getting maybe doesn't feel as real as coming home because they've already been home. I I agree with that. The thing that I found frustrating is, yes, I know what Earth has gone through while Voyager's been away, but they're not even trying to think about what it was like being the only Federation ship lost in the Delta Quadrant with no allies, no resources, only their intelligence and their abilities and their one ship to survive. And the fact that they did survive and lost very few people is a monumental achievement. And just nobody gets that. Nobody back home gets that. And I found that frustrating, but realistic. (laughs) And I agree. Like I said, they took it to the nth degree. Like it was just, they were such an afterthought that, you know, by that time I'm like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. Like someone's got to, got to care about these people and it's interesting because we see that journey play out with individual characters too the doctor for example you know wants to be interviewed by people and he wants all all that attention yeah he wants all the attention but nobody wants to talk to him about anything except for his hollow novel photons be free which is a whole nother thing that he gets into yeah let's not and um (laughs) (laughs) and we'll get there for sure and then um one aspect of that that I found odd and it just started to bug me a little bit was um, this idea of hero worship. And it's just it doesn't get to be too much except for this one part that just really yes. bugs me. Yes. So Janeway yes. comes back and meets up with her ex-fiance, Mark, who's now married to someone else. And they invite her to basically hang out with them and stay with them and like, okay, that's cool. That's all neat and stuff. And they're getting along. And the wife at one point when she's alone with Janeway says, oh, I was so jealous. And Janeway says, oh, you have nothing to fear for me. And the wife says, no, I was jealous of Mark because he got to know the amazingness that is you. And I'm just like, okay, (laughs) I kind of had to put the book down for a few minutes. I was like, all right, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know what? That line was ridiculous. I agree with you. That was one of my bones to pick with this, but you already brought it up first. And I'm just going to say now that overall, I found the writing a bit juvenile and a little bit messy. And I feel like, uh, I don't know, a couple of more edits could have helped this book a little. I'm not saying it's terrible, but I just found... A lot of things in there that I thought, hmm, well, you didn't really need to put those extra words in there. Uh, That's not very concise. Like, for instance, and I have this one highlighted, the beginning of chapter 12 saying, Today, Janeway and Carla Johnson were going to go to South Carolina. No, Janeway and Carla Johnson were going to South Carolina. They're not fixing to start, kids. They're going to South Carolina. (laughs) And so that's one of those things. It's just like, and it it didn't happen tons, but it just kind of 
colored the overall experience for me as being a little bit sophomoric. There was one thing that I noticed too, and it was this pattern was emerging chapter after chapter at the beginning. It was like, someone meets with someone, something is revealed, gasp, and then the scene ends and they move on to the next scene, which is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, this is, it's a really weird, it's, you know, and it's a trope you see in television all the time, the shocked look and the fade to black, and then the next scene after the commercial break comes to something else, you know, it's, but it's just yeah. over and over and over again. It's very soap opera-y. And another thing was that I, the first half of this book, I just lump that all together and call it fan service, the novel. Mm-hmm. And then because basically it's everything the fans wanted knowing what happened after they got home uh people meeting up again like harry seeing libby again and you know paris seeing his his dad again and his mom and introducing them to his wife and child and all of this fan service and i'm like in that part of the book i'm like okay this is great but what is the point of this book and it took a little too long for me to get to that point i agree i feel like the book really picked up Closer to the middle. Yes. Like, that's when the story really started to take off. But at the same time, I mean, the author is put in a place where she has to define where these characters are going into this from endgame into her story. And maybe that was just a little difficult and trying to tie a bow around certain things just to get it done and over with so she can move forward. But as I was reading the first part of the book, I started to realize how much I wanted this to be set up differently. You know, we're reading the, a time two series. And so it's nine books that, you know, between insurrection and nemesis. And I thought how great it would have been if the return of Voyager to earth was a nine book series and each book focused on a character. Yeah. And each character had its own full story. I mean, really like a deep story and the struggles that this character is having. There's just like, okay, so f- for example, Seven of Nine and Chakotay have a relationship, a romantic relationship. And at this cocktail reception party or whatever it is, Seven beams down and Chakotay's like, oh, I thought you weren't going to come. You didn't feel comfortable coming and she says oh well, i changed my mind oh and by the way i don't want to date you anymore i need time to myself to adjust with this and he's like i understand yeah <laughs> i'm like that yeah. is the most easiest breakup i've ever seen in my life i've always been a chakotay janeway shipper so when that happened i'm like mm, yeah <laughs> i'm terrible but it was too easy i know it was absolutely too easy and that's the thing it's like you've got all these characters and you're trying to give them all this closure for the fans, which is why it's the first half is fan service, the novel. And it just, it's not helping the book. I know that it's stuff that needs to be done, but the way in which it is done and then telling this other story on top of it, it's too much. Yeah. I feel like, first of all, the, the Chakotay seven thing, I have very mixed feelings about because <laughs> yay. Like, no, that was a mistake at the end of the show. That was what were they thinking Yes. I'm glad we we got a, got rid of it, but it deserved more than a paragraph, I think. I don't know. Absolutely. Just, just as someone who's been in relationships, even when they were a bad idea, the end of them deserves more than that. But anyway, I at least she acknowledged that it existed, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I almost feel like, and I may be totally off base here, but I almost feel like Christy Golden had a list of things that the editor probably said you have to Mm -hmm. do these things 
in this book. And I, part of me feels a little bad for her because, you know, I, I hate assignments like that, right? Yeah. You, you want a little bit more freedom. Um, again, I have no idea if that's that was the mandate, but it feels like that was the case. It kind of so does. I kind of have a little bit of forgiveness for that, but at the same time, it really shows that it's like, oh, I don't want to have to do this, but I have to do it, you know? And yeah, yeah that's not good. So also speaking of relationships, we have Harry and Libby. And we find out that Libby is basically working for the Secret Service of Starfleet. So Section Thirty One. <laughs> no, I know it's not, not quite. I know it's not Section Thirty One, but it might as well be. I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, it, it sounded like she joined it because she was missing Harry and she needed something more or whatever, and she joined this division of Starfleet. And now she's kind of working undercover to kind of keep an eye of what's going on with these crew members. And so she can have a closer relationship with Harry. She's still in love with Harry. So that's not fake. She can pursue that relationship with him. She's not really investigating him. It's just she's there to kind of pick up any information he may reveal because Admiral Montgomery is, they're suspecting Admiral Montgomery or somebody is trading weapons with the Orions and, Anyway, there's all kinds of stuff. Did you buy the whole thing of Libby, Dan, doing this thing that she's doing? When they first introduced it, I kind of went, what? Like, that doesn't... But then I feel like the author did enough to kind of fill in the backstory to make me buy it, you know? And and we don't didn't know a lot about the character beyond what we see of her in the alternate timeline in the episode Non Sequitur, but... I bought it, you know, I kind of, she, she led me there and that's what good writing can do. You know, you can take a character and do crazy things with them as long as you give them the motivation and the realism to be able to get there. And I feel like that happened with Libby, I, which surprised me because I was like, okay, Libby's a secret service agent who's, you know, okay, no, this is ridiculous. But no, it, I think it ended up working for me. I, I all I can picture is a friend I had in grade school because her name was Libby, <laughs> so she was really great at violin. Also a musician. Go figure. She was probably a secret agent. <laughs> anyway, I honestly at first I just thought, huh, okay. And then as I as they continued to lay it out, and I thought, no, that makes total sense because of her tour schedule and her being so kind and sweet. I mean, no one is ever going to suspect her ever. She's the perfect secret agent. And she feels like she's doing something for the greater good. So I feel like that actually didn't really bother me. It was kind of, it, it was a few seconds of, huh? And then I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah. It worked for me too. I, exact same way as you guys. At first I was like, Oh, gosh, really? And I remember as soon as I got to that part, I was like, oh, that's right. Libby's like the secret agent. And I'm, But as I was reading, it, I was like, yeah, I remember I didn't mind. It. I actually liked it. I thought it worked. And I'm, I like the fact that Harry and Libby started their relationship in this book back again, as opposed to being just, you know, oh, Harry, I've moved on. And, you know, you're always losing the girl, Harry, and you're going to lose me, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was I was always like, come on, give Harry a break here. Let's get Harry some lovin'. <laughs> I wanted Harry to get some lovin'. Guy's got some lovin', an extra pip. There's no stopping Harry now. <laughs> no. And then Echeb, okay, 
he gets right into the academy. He gets accepted right into Starfleet Academy right away. Like they're not even on earth for a day. My daughter is looking at colleges, apply at colleges. I wish she had it this easy. If it means I have to send her to the Delta Quadrant just to come back and get in college within a day, that would be great. But each up, boom, he's in Starfleet Academy. Just like that. Perfect. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. Wesley the Traveler zips by and goes, oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, the way I looked at that when we found out that Tuvok was teaching there, I'm like, oh, well, that's why. So Hmm. I'm pretty sure that Tuvok used his considerable influence. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's the one thing I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about how they didn't get maybe as big of a reception and people weren't making as big of a deal out of them. I think at the time of what Starfleet was going through and having just finished the Dominion War and they're trying to recover, they have been in communication with this crew for the last couple of years. Even though they've been in the Delta Quadrant, they knew they were alive. They've been sharing information back and forth. So even though they haven't been home they have been in contact with them. So it wasn't as if when each up showed up, they were like, Oh, I hadn't heard about this guy. And you want us to put him in the Academy. He used to be a Borg. Uh, we need to think about that for a while. They have maybe may already been talking. Hey, when we ever get back to earth, we'd like to put this guy in Starfleet Academy and Tuvox online back home, you know, commuting back home and saying, yeah, dude, I want to be a instructor there too. Yeah. <laughs> Making plans you know, for the future. T- Tuvok always said, dude, yeah. Oh, totally. You'd think, though, with that at much advance notice, they could plan a better party. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> they could. <laughs> they absolutely could. Well, at yeah. the beginning of Endgame, didn't, I mean, didn't we see Voyager with fireworks? Mm-hmm. That was the, the 20 years in the future version. Oh, that's, right. Yeah. that's right. And I noticed they made a point to outright say, like, there are no fireworks or huge celebrations for Voyager because blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, that's interesting, you know, that it plays out differently because of when it happens kind of thing. So then we have the doctor and he's being ignored, as we mentioned earlier. But this leads into some other uh, things where we really start to build into the storylines here at the last half of this book, where he's like, you know, no one seems to want to interview me, interview me. Nobody seems to care, whatever. And then this guy shows up calls him and says hey i'd like to come see you by the way everybody can beam around wherever so easily it's just a little too convenient for me yeah everybody (laughs) beams into everybody else's living room did this bother anyone else i'm like no me no (laughs) i would not be happy with people just beaming in unannounced i do not like that do not surprise me in my own home thank you call first And what really bugged me is, like, even in this book, sorry to go on a tangent, but they talk about, like, public transporter stations, which I totally, that's what I always picture in my head, like, you know, bus stops like we have now, except they're transporters, and you beam from transporter to transporter. Like, why is everybody beaming into other people's homes? That's not right. Well, Dan, I told you on the other side of the page that the whole thing with uh, Janeway and Mark, Mark calls... Janeway's was it his her aunt or cousin or somebody mm, and just yeah. says hey do you think Catherine would be fine if I stop by oh yeah sure so he just randomly shows up and knocks on her door and she opens she's like oh, Mark and he's like well so and so said it'd be okay if I stop by and I'm like if if your fiance ex-fiance had been lost in the Delta Quadrant for seven years 
wouldn't you kind of call and say, hey, you okay if I come over and not ask a family member instead? <laughs> yeah, this is that soap opera writing that Brandy was talking about. Exactly. Like, it's just like, open the door and oh, take my breath away. Oh, Mark, I wasn't expecting you. And then we get to have this big dramatic scene and then we move on to the other thing. And I'm like, oh, God, no, it's so melodramatic. And what's the dog's anyway. name? Like Molly or something like that? Molly, yeah. Yeah. She's like, you know, oh, Molly doesn't remember me. But later on, oh, Molly seems to be warming up. <laughs> I kind of like that because as soon as I read that, I was expecting Molly to just like run over and start licking her and be all happy. And I was like, no, that's not what would, ha what would happen. And then she's like really standoffish. And I don't know this person. I'm like, there you go. That's how it would be. Sorry, yeah. dog lovers. I no, That's how I, it would be. I agree. But I, I <laughs> seven think, years. <laughs> I think that the dog would have actually figured it out sooner because of sense or smell memory, scent memory. I guess because that's what dogs operate most on is scent, and I think that he would be like, oh wait, this is slightly familiar to me. Let me let me have a let me sniff your butt. Because <laughs> that's what dogs love to do. <laughs> they love to sniff your privates. Because that's how they greet each other, is they sniff each other's butts. But I feel like that that dog probably would have figured that out very, uh, pretty quickly, you know, within mm. a couple hours, is my guess. Yeah. But, like, I was, I was totally expecting the cliched, like... Immediate, the whole, just yeah. Oh, no, I, 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 like, I okay, didn't want good. that either. At least they didn't do that. <laughs> but I, I fully expected the dog to eventually recognize her. Are you okay, Bruce? <laughs> I'm just laughing. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, I gotta say, I'm, I'm really glad us humans didn't follow the evolutionary path that we greet each other by sniffing each other's butts. You know. Yeah, it's so. not my preference. No. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I'm glad Mark and Janeway greeted the way they did now. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm sorry I brought butt stuff into it. <laughs> so uh, Molly was the most realistic character in this book, would you say? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Actually, probably. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, let's go back to the doctor. Yes, yeah, sorry. Okay. So sorry. Michael. No, I'm glad we talked because I did want to talk about the whole <laughs> everybody transporting just, you know, I remember even someone said, you know, they, someone lives in one state and someone, said, hey, you know, I can just beam over right now and we can talk. Uh, it's, it's just too easy. But um, outside of that, so Oliver Baines beams over to see the doctor <laughs> and he is overseeing that um, mining facility colony or whatever where all the mark ones that look like the doctor had been working on mining whatever it is that they're mining and dan what are they mining because you know everything i'm not sure oh, oh you got you got, got no <laughs> i gotcha i gotcha probably dilithium but <laughs> i don't know <laughs> gosh now i'm curious <laughs> we'll have to figure that one out but anyway uh Oliver Baines wants to start a revolution and free the holograms because, you know, like the doctor, they should have their own say of what they're going to do with their life. And the doctor's just like, no, I am not getting involved in that. No, no, no. And he gives them a little bit of advice and everything. But all of a sudden what happens is this Baines guy starts a hollow strike where the holograms all of a sudden stop working. Now, now even this started to bother me a little. And I don't mean that I... I don't like the story element, but the idea that holograms are running restaurants and transporter stations and all these things doing all this, 
manual labor on earth i'm like what are people on earth doing then if holograms are doing everything and i know that they're programs and and that kind of addresses the issue too of you know should they be treated this way they're being treated like slaves should they be individuals i mean they are computer programs it brings that whole debate that's always come up about holograms and about the doctor and and such but just the idea, like, I don't think I'd want to go to restaurants where the wait staff and the cook staff are all holograms. Like, everywhere you go on Earth, everything's being run by holograms. Did that, like, rub you the wrong way, too? Yeah, it was It was really strange to me. I And even to the point where at one point in the book they talk about how Starfleet is more traditional because they don't use holograms everywhere. I'm like, this is weird. Like, this seems strange to me that... All of the sudden, every restaurant has hollow emitters, I guess, and has holograms walking around. Like, we never have seen that before. Cisco's restaurant, I mean, as far as I know, they were all waiters because he put Jake to work as a waiter every time they visited. And it just, yeah, it was very strange to me that all of the sudden we have a society that's built on the backs of the holograms, apparently. And that's a new... uh, I don't know. Other than those miners we saw in the Voyager episode, that's a new development to me. Yeah, and what are the chances that Starfleet would start using holograms to pilot ships and run the ships? And I think that's been mentioned before. I mean, I think it's an interesting take by the author to look at the future. I mean, if you have holograms that can do these things, then it makes sense that we probably would have a society where a lot of things are being operated by holograms but just the thought of that is kind of eerie to me it is and the fact of the matter is unless you have a holographic program like the doctor that is allowed to learn and expand their programming uh basically you're still lacking that human touch that human ingenuity that sixth sense that humans often possess that a machine just can't you know a basic program just can't because it's a set program that can only perform a certain number of functions. So I just find it weird. And I don't, I don't know. I don't find it realistic that all of these places would be run by holograms. Well, I often think too about how in Star Trek, it's about humans bettering themselves. Yes. And I would think that if we're in an age where there's no money necessarily and, and everybody's kind of living the best of their lives, that people would choose to run their own restaurants and cook their own food and take care of their own customers and and do all these things and not give that all to holograms to operate everything and everybody's sitting around doing nothing. Well, and Mm -hmm. apparently all the furniture is also holographic. (laughs) Yeah. What? What What is that? That makes sense. Yeah, like, I I, I don't get it. You know what it reminded me of? I remember thinking while I was reading this, is like, are we really turning into the 24th century? Is is everybody going to be like Wally? Like, where they're just all in these chairs getting their every need tended to? Like, I'm sorry. I like cooking. I like doing things with my hands. I like building models. People would still be making furniture and, and... that doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. It, Agree. Well, it doesn't necessarily that's not mean the future I want. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean the whole planet is actually run this way. Too. True. I mean, maybe it's like you know half the restaurants are this way, and you know maybe the future McDonald's and Burger Kings are hologram run, but then like the really nice restaurants aren't. To be fair, the McDonald's by my place has all those automated 
machines now and no people behind the counter. So I, maybe you've got a point there. You mean it's an automat? You don't have to... <laughs> like from yeah, the just... 50s? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like it's like a touchscreen thing and you select your meal. And I've been in there once because I was late for work and had to get breakfast. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. And I didn't like it. And then the doctor shows up and he's like, please state the nature of your Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I mostly I mostly didn't like it because at the time I was teaching and I'm like, my students could have jobs here. What are you doing, McDonald's? Uh, anyway. Yeah, but your order will always be rung upright. Mm-hmm. I mm. told them no pickles. Oh, anyway, <laughs> that's the only that's the only upside, I think that there there is definitely truth to that. <laughs> Although Sorry, I, exactly. <laughs> I did go through Burger King on the way home tonight and they got my order correct. So I'm very happy. It's the sad thing when you get surprised by your order being correct. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> that is that's just, a that's a good day. Is, oh. It's just kind of like, oh, really? Oh. Yeah, I would say most of the time everything was this. adequate. <laughs> <laughs> so wow, we went from hollow striking to Burger King orders. That's really great. So <laughs> one of the things is now, yeah, these these holograms are on strike. So you know, Janeway's sitting in a restaurant, and all of a sudden she falls to the floor because all the furniture disappears and the waitstaff is gone and and such, and she's got food or whatever all over her but then admiral montgomery who's involved in so much crap going on throughout this book has the doctor arrested because you know they suspect that you know he may be involved in this revolution of the strike that the holograms are doing so now the doctor's locked up in jail and janeway's fighting for him and you know you should leave the doctor alone he had nothing to do with this and the doctor was writing a book brandy about doing something like this but that's yeah. fiction right yeah it's you can't be held responsible for fiction just like there's a good very good reason why there aren't thought police people have thoughts but it's how they put them out into the world that really matters not that they had the thought but what they do about the thought and that's why we are higher beings because we can make a choice of whether to act on that thought or not and putting it into fiction is sometimes a good way to exorcise yourself of certain thoughts and feelings. And I feel like that's what the doctor was doing. Uh, he was just figuring out how he could tell more of a story. And I, I liked the perspective that the author brought to it, too. As as a writer herself, of course, what she had to say about writers and fiction and that sort of thing. And like you said, it's a way to exercise those feelings. It's a way to... It's fiction, you know, it's it's taking an idea and making it dramatic, making it worth reading. You know, you're not going to write a novel about holographic rights by saying, oh, we should petition the government and that will be successful and everyone <laughs> will be happy. No, a revolution is exciting and all this kind of thing. It doesn't mean that he's out there trying to foment a revolution and, and kick that off. It's just it's fiction, like you said. Yeah, it was a first draft, for heaven's sake. I mean, you just, you can't look at anybody's first draft and go, oh, well, this, I know where this is going to be. Because first drafts are never what the end result actually becomes. But I took that as just being an excuse, that they just yeah. wanted to arrest the doctor. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, 
I mean, and that's really what it comes down to for sure. It's, well, that's again, knee jerk reaction. So many knee jerk reactions. And I feel like this is the 24th century. Haven't we moved past this yet? Aren't we supposed to be better <laughs> than this? And apparently we're not. Well, and speaking of getting arrested in knee-jerk reactions, they do the same thing with Seven of Nine in Egypt. They arrest them because now we start to find out here on the planet that not a lot of people, but it starts off with Seven, and then I think it goes up to like 28 or something like that. People start turning into Borg for some unknown reasons. And I can see Starfleet and the Federation wondering if there's a connection between that and Voyager because after Voyager arrives to Earth, all of a sudden there are people turning into Borg. And so Seven, of course, is somebody that they're very interested in seeing if there's something involved with her there and also with Echeb, who, by the way, got beat up at Starfleet Academy pretty badly. Like yep. His face was all swollen and bloody. And again, you know, it made me think of you know, is that really the kind of cadets we have at the Academy with that would beat someone up like that? But then I think in Star Trek 09, we had a bar fight. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and she does have an interesting way of kind of putting a little cap on that. And I'm going to, this is another thing I highlighted in my book uh, where she says, I mean, it's a third person thing. Starfleet cadets were supposed to be the finest representatives of their generation. They were supposed to be tolerant, compassionate, protective of the weak. And yet how viciously they had turned on their own at the mere thought of a Borg threat. That to me was, uh, one of the more disturbing parts of the book. And I have to say one of the more disturbing parts because of the interstitial chapters featuring child abuse. But but as far as just visceral reaction and shock, like that scene, and especially coming from Echep, who in a lot of ways is very much an innocent and is just like the description of what he's going through where he's you know, the blows kept raining down and he lifts his arms to protect his face. And all of a sudden he's just, you can tell he's just lost consciousness because he can't do anything now. And it's just like, so sad. I was, I was honestly moved at that point in the novel. It was awful. Yeah. It was very disturbing to me as well. And, uh, so when, when Tuvok came and picked him up, I'm like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're a good man, Tuvok. Yeah, that kind of bothered me afterwards because Tuvok picks him up and then next thing you know, it, Echeb is thrown into this brig. And I'm like, how did they get to Echeb when Tuvok had him? And where's Tuvok now? Like I was missing a connection yeah, there. There really wasn't. That really was never explained. But I'm assuming that uh, Montgomery was already looking for Echeb and just followed the trail. And so took him from Tuvok. What could Tuvok do about it? But they, they don't really explain that, which is interesting because they explain so many other things. But that's one thing where they just don't really give us the information of how that came about. Yeah, it would have been nice to get a little bit more clarification there. I kind of assumed that that Tuvok followed protocol and took him to the headmaster's office or to the infirmary at the academy or whatever and gave his report on what happened. And they said, thank you commander will take it from here and then tossed him in prison which i'm just like oh but they what? didn't like because what happens to the cadets <laughs> but they didn't because when they put each in there he was in the same cell with seven and the doctor and i remember the doctor saying you know this boy needs medical attention at least you know mm -hmm. give him some 
take him to the infirmary. Well, that, that's what I mean. Like they took him directly from wherever Tuvok dropped him off. Or yeah, maybe to. Tuvok was just like, I can't stand this kid. Take him. <laughs> oh, no. Aww. No, 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 no. No, not Tuvok. Tuvok, Maybe, Tuvok no. would assume that, that the Starfleet people would be righteous and like, you know, in Tuvok's mind, I think like, there's no, like, why, why would they even do that? You know, here's a cadet who's been beaten within an inch of his life. They're going to take him and, and operate on him and, you know, fix him and then bring to justice the people that did this, you know? Yeah. At I, least, you know, yeah, throw a little dermal regeneration on him. Good grief. Yeah. It's the least you could do. The absolute least you could do. But no. Well, they do start to get... accomplish it with special effects these days. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> they do start to get some medical attention from Dr. Kaz. And I like this character. Me too. Because he seems to be the one who's more realistic of, you know, I'm not choosing sides. I'm just seeing what's going on here. And if anything, yeah, I think you people are being mistreated. And I believe what you're saying and he's almost like you know i don't know what's going on with these other people but i'm with you i want a book about this guy the joined trill former poet ex maki guy like come on <laughs> this guy's cool <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah i would i'd be on board with that uh well the thing about the thing about kaz is that he is a doctor first and foremost in his current joining and so his first and only priority is the health of his patients and the well-being of his patients. So, of course, he's going to be on their side. He's a good doctor. And, I mean, just he's he's really between a rock and a hard place. And he's so compassionate. And I just I loved this character. And I want more. Let's have that Kaz book, please. Well, there is another book, so... Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I mean, one just about <laughs> him. It's not going to happen. I know. I know. Star Trek, Kaz. <laughs> yeah. People would be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> or Star Trek, Molly. Star Trek, <laughs> Molly and Kaz. No, I'm kidding. You, you can't really Ooh. make that connection. It's like Turner and Hooch, but like in the Mo Star Trek universe. There you go. No, that's... that's a... Not a good idea. <laughs> I don't know how we'd make that connection because he's not a veterinarian. Well, he's a trill. Maybe one of his former hosts was. Fair. Fair point. CBS Writer's Room, hire me. <laughs> the man who can rationalize anything, Dan Gunther. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we end this book, I mean, because we pretty much have reached the end, which is then the cliffhanger going into the, the next book. Um, one thing I did want to mention real quick, because this has an effect on future Voyager books, is Balana, you know, she has a daughter, Muriel. She gets a communication from her mother and basically has to go on a spirit walk. And anything, anyway, things have developed now that Balana leaves, I guess it's on Kronos or somewhere in the Klingon Empire that she goes to. It's, with a, Muriel. it's a sanctuary. Bora. Yeah, Bora. A sanctuary, yeah. yeah. It's uh, the, the sanctuary from uh, the episode Rightful Heir, where Kaelas is reborn. And I think, and Tom stays back on Earth with Muriel. And I just want to mention that because they're this little family now that there's a storyline that develops in later Voyager novels to involve the three of them, especially, is it Mur Muriel? Or, it's Moral, I, I thought. Moral, that's right. I was like saying it, I was like, Moral. <laughs> 
That sounds too <laughs> human. I was like, Miria? Wait, that doesn't sound right. It's Moral. Exactly. Yeah. To be fair, she's three quarter human. So. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, you know, she's named after Balana's mother, Miral. So well. yeah, which we do hear from in this book. So that's just a storyline I just want to put out there. So, but anyway, what, Brandy, are your final thoughts about Homecoming? Homecoming is a book with dissociative identity disorder. It's not sure what it wants to be when it first starts. <laughs> and it's basically three different stories going on, except one of those stories is a lot of stories crammed in as fan service to hurry and get this out of the way so we can tell the real story. It kind of didn't work for me in that particular setup way. And as I said before, I did find the writing a bit sophomoric in places. However, it was a very quick read for me because I actually started reading it while my husband was getting his hair cut. And by the time he was done, I was like, I have to stop reading. And when we got home, I just picked right up where I had left off. And I finished that book that night. I read it all in one day, in one evening, basically. So it wasn't that it was difficult to read. It wasn't difficult for me to follow in most cases. But I felt that it should have all just been one book. I felt that having this cliffhanger, again, very, very soap opera. And for people to have to wait months for it, the next one to come out, I'm glad that I already had both of them together because that would have displeased me greatly. I know it's building suspense and building interests, but I don't think that that's a fair trick in Star Trek. Don't do it. Don't, don't be... Don't be a cliffhanger in Star Trek. Just don't. Unless you're the best of both worlds. Even that one, when you get to the second one, it's just like, okay, so that whole big thing is just nothing. Why did I wait all these months for that? So it's like, <laughs> oh, so that didn't work. So how would you rank this book then? Let's see. How would I rank this book? That is a very good question and something that I thought I knew what I was going to say. And now that I'm here at this point, I may have changed my mind. <laughs> so I I feel like I there, there are good points and bad points to this book. A lot of setup and then a lot of strange things that just didn't make sense to me. So I'm going to rate it at three out of five gruff admiral paris is happy to see tom again <laughs> nice i don't know if i'd want to face three of them but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think dan yeah i have a lot of similar thoughts very soap opera-y very you know melodramatic in places i liked some of the choices but again this story i felt needed time to breathe i i your your suggestion of a separate novel for each character and really kind of what coming home means to them and that kind of thing. Oh man, like I'm not even a big Voyager fan and I would have eaten that up like that. That would be great. But they just, yeah, it goes through the motions and ticks all the boxes in the first half. And then in the second half, we get into this story that, you know, the actual story of these two books and one that I'm not incredibly invested in, but you know, we'll see where it goes the cliffhanger I even find is not even, you know, we we just have all these things going on. People are getting arrested. And then the cliffhanger is here's a computer model of what we think will happen if this Borg virus continues to spread. And I'm like, it's not even anything happening. It's a simulation showing what they're worried will happen. 
Like, that's not the cliffhanger you go out on. I, I don't know what is. I'm not a novel writer, but that didn't do it for me. But that said, you know, it ticks some of the boxes that I do like. It makes some good choices. Um, it was entertaining. I, I got through it quickly. <laughs> Ironically, even though this is my third time reading it and I've never read the follow-up, it makes me really want to read the follow-up. <laughs> I'm just weird circumstances that didn't let that happen before. So I think I'd have to give it three out of five pips handed out at Voyager's welcome home banquet. Uh, yeah, I'm with you guys on this. As, as the novel started off, the first half of it was just, as we mentioned, a little rush, a little too convenient. You know, I expected, you know, Brandy, you mentioned about Tom and his father. I expected, Ooh, this will really play out that whole relationship. And then, it's like uh, they they get along great, and Tom's father seems like a great guy. I don't know why they ever had a problem. You know, it's just you know, it's just things like that, and like the whole Chakotay Seven. I was never a big fan of that relationship either, but it was just so like easy. We're just gonna break up, like in the first chapter or whatever it was, in the second chapter or wherever, wherever that was. But anyway, but as the book progressed, and I felt like it really started to get into the story. I like the whole idea of the holograms going on strike. I like the idea of there's something going on with the Borg, even though I feel like we've explored the Borg a little too much in Voyager. It's interesting to me that we have this outbreak of people turning into Borg for some unknown reason, and that interests me also. And also to the point, like you said, Dan, I want to go to the next book. I'm ready. It's like as soon as we're done recording, tomorrow morning I plan to start reading the second book right away so it it did its job there so not too impressed with the first half really starting to like the second half i'm really hoping that things get even better when we get to the second book so i will give this three knee-jerk reactions <laughs> nice <laughs> i like it <laughs> All right. Well, Brandy, thank you for joining us. We'll have you back next week to talk about that second book. So that should be an interesting conversation. So in the meantime, if people want to find you online, where can they find you? Nowhere. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at Brandywine12. Brandy is with an I. 12 is a number. You'll find me lurking in the Babel Conference from time to time. Not as much as I used to. You can find me on the Trek FM network on Warp 5 with my good friends, Patrick Devlin and Brandon Shamatella. And I do a podcast with my husband, Dave, called the Dark Corner Podcast, which you can find at darkcornerpodcast.com. I can speak, I swear. And, uh, and, and we swear on that show, mostly me. I have a potty mouth. Well, you do talk about sniffing butts, so. Hey, that's actually tame. <laughs> <laughs> wow if you want to see that side of brandy be sure to tune into that yeah well let me just say one of our episodes was from something i accidentally said in a warp five when i tried to say fighting force and it came out farting force and dave and i decided to do an episode where we wrote a movie called farting force and we did that i'd watch that superhero team <laughs> superhero team farting force they can control their farts in different ways yes it's true we sank that low Oh, wow. Okay. Well, then we'll let you go. And uh, <laughs> we're going to flip the page and we'll, we'll hear back from you next week.
Well, you know, we were talking about this novel and then all of the sudden, all of the holographic furniture in my room and my holographic attendees just up and disappeared. So, man, talk about art imitating life. Am I right? Yeah, I don't even own the book anymore. It disappeared. It was a hologram the whole time. Oh, why'd we go and make everything holograms? This book is totally just a a, a sign for the future to not make these same mistakes. I tell you, I love it when fiction gives good messages like that. <laughs> okay, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know. You know, one thing <laughs> I've learned from this, if all the holograms disappeared and you're still talking, then you must be the real thing. There you go. Or I'm secretly undercover as part of What's-His-Face's holographic rebellion. But you know, it's not just hologram rebellions that we've been talking about here on the network. Here's other things we've been discussing elsewhere on Trek.fm. Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. I think that while while I agree he, he's not malicious and I hesitate, you know, it's hard to call him evil because he seems like such a... Zahn does a really great head game of constructing this time on an Imperial ship where you have to continually say to yourself... It's almost like... Honestly, it's almost like watching John Smith at home in The Man in the High Castle. You see this guy in... A, in uh, If anybody hasn't watched it, it's an alternative history thing based on a Philip K. Dick novel where in this alternate history, the the Axis powers won World War II. And so... Coming soon to a six club near you. Oh, yeah. it's I love the show so much. But... One of the mind tricks that show does with you is you meet this one character where you have to continually remind yourself he's working for the bad guys. Stop giving him so many breaks. Earl Grey. But I wanted to actually do some like humming and singing of my choice, if that's okay. all right with you guys. Please take it away. <laughs> so when I thought what I thought of it was I fell into a burning ring of fire and went down, 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 and the flames went higher. I just love that song. I had to sing it. To the journey! You compared the mind meld to notches on a bedpost? Why can't I compare it to trench coat flashing? No, I'm saying it's not like that. It shouldn't be like that. You're the one saying it's like that. I'm not at all. But if you're doing it, that's what you're doing. You're seeing how many people you can mind meld with, and that's notches on a bedpost or trench coat flashing. That's what you're trying to do. It just seems like such an efficient way to get knowledge and experiences from other people. You know what's more efficient? Assimilation. <laughs> yes, yes it is. So what's stopping you from going that next step? Because we're, we're talking about the Kess era here. We don't have Seven of Nine yet, you know. Continuing Mission. So you were that in the helps. second episode. I was in the second episode. Which, and at that time, it was no longer Star Trek Renegades. It was just Renegades. Well, when I got on the plane to go down to be on set, <laughs> it was Star Trek Renegades. When the plane landed, <laughs> CBS had released fan okay. film guidelines. Okay. And so they had already shot one day as Star Trek okay. Renegades with Nichelle Nichols and Walter Koenig, uh, Sirk Lofton and Tim Russ doing some green screen work and they had the uniforms the ears the badges all that mm -hmm. and then they had to shut production down for a day they tried to get a hold of you know, lawyers talking to lawyers saying what do we do to continue or not continue 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If wherever you find your podcasts is Apple, make sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the chance and the time and the will, please leave us a star rating and a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well, though. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. I forgot about the YouTube thing. That's right. Yeah. And if you'd like to help us out and keep our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details perks include early access to episodes exclusive content producer credits and more available through our special patrons website patron zone it requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again again and again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. You know whose thoughts we'd love to hear about today's show? Yours. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to me and Bruce. You can also find the network on Twitter, that's at trek.fm, and we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And find us on Goodreads. We can find our group where you have a bookshelf there that shows you all the book covers that we've covered and things that we've covered in the past and what's coming up on future episodes so you know what to read before the shows come out. So go to Goodreads and join the great conversations we have on there. Just search for Literary Treks and then click Join Group and we'll let you write in. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you are like Harry and you're just looking for some loving, where can people find you? <laughs> well, you can find me swiping right on Libby. I really hope she's not a spy by the way. Uh, but when I'm not on that particular app, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube. That's YouTube.com slash Productions, And on my book review website, which I finally have the URL working. So you can find that at Treklet.com. Really easy to remember for that one. So yeah, uh, all those places and more. Usually kicking around the Babel Conference because... I got nothing better to do to do than talk about Star Trek all the time. And Bruce, when you're not traveling to Boreth to undergo the challenge of the spirit, where can we find you? 
You can find me doing my spirit walk on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me here on the network. Recently, I was on an episode of the 602 Club talking about the novel Star Wars Thrawn Alliances with Matt Rushing and John Mills. And speaking of Star Wars, you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast. Wherever you find podcast, you will find us there. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference talking and reading about Star Trek, one of my favorite things to do. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.